0: This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to the Trailblazers Talks, a series of conversations with Australia's greatest living explorers, presented by Australian Geographic. Recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good evening everyone and welcome to the Australian Museum. My name's Kim McKay and I'm the director and CEO here and it's my great pleasure to welcome you along to our 19th uh, Trailblazer presentation this evening. And of course, we've been running these wonderful talks each week in conjunction with our Trailblazers exhibition. I should say our award-winning Trailblazers exhibition because we just won uh, the best temporary exhibit in Australia at the Museums and Galleries Awards last month. So we're very proud of that. Yay. But tonight we're in for a real thrill. A travel, I guess, a journey, something maybe all of us would like to do in life. With the fantastic Gabby Kenner, the first woman to, Australian woman to solo circumnavigate the world. And I remember, Gabby, when you completed that, I was a bit younger then, as I think we all were. But I remember it so well, and I thought, oh, I would love to be like her up there flying around the world with that bird's eye view and dealing with all the issues you dealt with. And it was a remarkable, remarkable journey, a remarkable achievement. And, of course, we tried to put as many Australian women in trailblazers as possible to demonstrate that there's been quite a history of Australian women in exploration and adventure, not just in the modern day. Of course, we've got some uh, other wonderful women in there who I know you've been inspired by over the years in terms of flying. We were just even talking about Amelia Earhart, the American woman a minute ago, who uh, I know did inspire you originally. But, you know, flight has always been so linked to Australia in so many ways. You know, right at the very beginning of flight, people in Australia were heavily engaged, of course, through high grades and others. So I think that, Tonight we're in for a real treat. I'm not going through all of Gabby's incredible awards and recognitions, hopefully you've read about that, but she is going to take us on a wonderful journey tonight, hopefully revisiting some of her adventures. Please welcome the extraordinary Gabby Kennard.
1: Oh dear. Thank you so much for a lovely introduction, Kim. I feel very honoured, I must say, to be included in this Trailblazers exhibition because I know there are lots and lots of wonderful uh, Trailblazers in Australia and um, I'm very honoured. Anyway, thank you for including me. I thought that I might show you a short video to give you a a bit of a flavour of the flight and then speak for a few minutes and then pass it over to you because I think that um, interaction with you and answering your questions is really much more interesting than you listening to me rabbit on. Uh, so, what I'd like to do is show the video, Scott. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Gosh, what an experience. And that was 27 years ago, as you could probably tell from the way I looked. <laughs> Anyway, so much technological development has happened in that 27 years. And uh, my flight was before email. Um, and now, of course, everybody is using a mobile phone. Um, of course, no GPS, um, which is just such a wonderful tool for people that fly and drive cars. Um, I can't imagine life without my without that technology, actually. No Instagram or Facebook. Um, and, I, and frankly, if I lose my phone for about 10 minutes, I'm, I'm in a panic. <laughs> anyway, recently in Europe, I'd like to share something with you. I had an experience uh, which took me back vividly to the day I arrived home at Bankstown on the 10th of November 1989. I remember vividly standing on the rostrum uh, with Catherine Greiner, Kay Coddy, Dawn Fraser and good old Bronwyn Bishop. Um, and it was drizzling. Uh, there were lots of colourful umbrellas, policemen, noise, about 2,000 people and my children close by, contrasting to the day that I departed 12 weeks prior with only 20 friends and family there. But the MC asked me to speak, you know, wanted me to say something illuminating and how it all was. And unfortunately, I was absolutely speechless. I couldn't say a word completely couldn't say a thing but one of my friends shouted out who was down down there in the in the group um, he shouted out they took the wall down for you they brought the wall down for you and of course he was German and living in the Blue Mountains I had no idea what he was talking about because on my trip I I had no contact really with anybody and I didn't know what was going on in the world but later I realized what he meant he meant um, the Berlin Wall and it was the 9th of November in Germany that day, um, the day of reunification of East and West Berlin. And when I saw the remainder of the wall in Berlin recently, um, only about a week and a half ago, I, that day came flooding back to me in, with such technicolor. I mean, it was just, just amazing. And I haven't really um, thought about that sort of thing. Uh, and, and in fact, it, you know, because it's 27 years ago, um, it's, it's a bit hard to recall really, it's almost like it was another lifetime ago. But I thought what I might do is give you a few little statistics about the flight and then maybe we can, you can ask me questions because there's so much I could tell you and I don't want to bore you. Um, the aircraft was um, a nine-year-old Piper Saratoga, which was a great aeroplane with a 300 horsepower engine, a reconditioned continental engine. And I was very confident about that, because um, although it was nine years old and what have you, it um, it carried weight very well. And so I had to have 200 gallons of fuel to give me um, a long distance you know, across the, the oceans. And um, so therefore, I knew that it could handle uh, being 50% over gross weight, which I was actually when I took off with 200 gallons. Um, and the distance of the flight was about 28,000 nautical miles. And I had 39 stops, and I visited 21 countries. And I crossed the equator five times. I was mainly around the equator, but you know I sort of went up and down, crossed it five times. And I had many long ocean crossings. The longest leg was almost 2,000 nautical miles, and that was from Hawaii to the west coast. And the first crossing was from Cairns to Port Moresby, and that was about 500 nautical miles. And I thought that was a really good um, starter for me because I hadn't actually flown over water before except to Tasmania, um, and we used to follow the islands. We'd island hop, and of course it was only about 80 nautical miles or something. So 500 nautical miles seemed a reasonable um, figure for me. And then the next one was from Papua New Guinea to the Marshall Islands which was about 1,700 nautical miles and it was quite interesting coming into the Marshall Islands because I was quite nervous really as you can imagine because it's sort of going over the ocean and there's absolutely nothing and it's a fairly isolated part of the Pacific and then I was so excited when I saw these little atolls coming up because it's, it's the highest point of the Marshall Islands is, is about a metre <laughs> So, you know, to see them, and they're just coral caves, but to see these little islands coming up was incredibly exciting for me. And as I landed um, uh, there, it was... Because in the tropics, you know, night falls very quickly, and I just shut the engine down, and the next thing it was pitch black, and so I felt very happy. And then, of course, I went from the Marshall Islands to um, Hawaii via Johnson Atoll, which was this so-called secret military base, and I've, I had no plans to land there at all, um, but because it was I was an hour late in, in flying over this island, I was very apprehensive about the amount of fuel I had, and in fact it was a, quite a gut, gut-wrenching experience because when you're flying over the ocean and the clouds are, are putting a reflection or a shadow on the water, it looks like a little island, and this little island was so tiny, it just was enough for a, an airstrip. And I mean it just didn't come up and I thought well I could be I could be miles off track I could be anywhere in the Pacific and of course this is what happened to poor Amelia she was headed for Howland Island and she never found it you know and she just went into the sea according to some people Uh, in around the area of Johnson Island uh, no not Johnson Island sorry the Marshall Islands anyway and then from Hawaii to the west coast which as I said was the longest leg of 200 and then South America to Africa across the South Atlantic was about seventeen hundred nautical miles, you know, which was quite something really. And as for the navigation, um, I did borrow a, a fantastic, what I thought was a wonderful, wonderful thing called an Omega navigation system. But of course, unfortunately, it was very, it was a very poor tool. And when I got to Africa, having gone through a lot of storms. Um, it, I think the circuits were completely fried so it wasn't I had to turn it off completely because it would have it would have probably got me lost I had to turn it off and unfortunately there were very few places where I could get it repaired and so basically um, I suppose you could say that it was uh, the navigation was called was really dead reckoning which is like the pioneers um, and of course GPS came out I suppose about I think about twelve months after I completed my flight. But but now I think it would be good to if you ask me questions, because that way it's far more interesting for everybody, I reckon. So, would you like to ask me something? Don't feel feel shy. Um,
0: I'll kick off, Gabby. I just I wanted to know when you were uh, realised you were down on you were running late and you wanted to land at Johnson Island, and you obviously called Johnson Island on the radio. Yes. How did the Americans respond wanting to take an unknown person onto their base?
1: Well, they didn't answer me at all because... <laughs> <laughs> it's always a good way. Thank you for asking that one. No, they didn't answer me because, you see, they the, nobody was allowed to land there except for special flights that were approved. And um, so they weren't expecting anybody that day. And as a matter of fact, um, they did have a, a navigation beacon on that, like a radio beacon, uh, what they call a non-directional beacon. But I couldn't pick it up. And even though it was very powerful, I couldn't pick it up. So prior to landing, I had called um, what they called Honolulu Radio. And I said, um, has Johnson Island got their NDB on today by chance? I, and anyway, they didn't answer me either. But then the, um, it came on. And I thought, oh, what a relief. So I knew it was in front of me. So then when I got there, I was so relieved. And um, I thought, well, I'll land. And, of course, then I called them. But they didn't answer me because it was Saturday. They weren't expecting anybody. And um, it was only on late final that I saw these little figures running to the to the tower. And uh, so I, I landed without speaking to anybody. And then I, I was greeted by a truck that had... Follow me, follow me, and flashing lights. So I followed the truck and I, I stopped and turned the engine off. And then I realised that I was completely surrounded by soldiers with machine guns pointed at me. Um, but of course, it, it really seriously didn't. I mean, I, I just sort of went a bit blank, I suppose. And I thought, oh no, no way, they're going to they, they're going to shoot me. So so I relaxed quite a bit, but I did feel a little bit embarrassed because you see, I had this little. What they call a porter potty, and, and and it was beside me, and it was full, and it was a plastic thing with yellow urine in it, and I thought, oh my god, you know they're going to see that, uh, but anyway, I just I, I got over that, and and the commanding officer came up, and he had um, shorts and sneakers, and he had just been running around the island, so he said, oh well, you know they were very serious initially, mm-hmm. but then he said, would you like an ice cream, and I went, oh yes how wonderful so uh, he gave me an ice cream I don't know where the hell that came from and and I ate it and then he said would you like another one because obviously I really enjoyed it and I said okay and and then then he said well what can we do for you and I said well um maybe you could give me some fuel and he said yes uh we had a drum of avgas in the shed and and then I, I thought I was rather hoping that I might be able to stay the night you know to get over this sort of Apprehension and drama that I'd gone through. And anyway, he said, I'm sorry, you can't stay. There's no way, you know, we, we don't have any women on this island and we don't have accommodation, so you'll have to go after we give you the fuel. So he gave me the fuel and off I went into the night <laughs> 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 and landed um, finally in Hawaii and um, at 2 a.m. in the morning. And it was just so exciting to be going into that area and seeing these little sparkling lights, you know, of all the islands of Hawaii. And then I thought to myself, oh, God, apart from the sparkling lights, it was pretty dead and quiet and dark. And I thought, well, gee whiz, I hope I can find the the airfield all right. And then, of course, luckily I then saw this, you know, this high-intensity lighting with an arrow sort of pointing towards the runway. And I landed and... Then when I landed, it was quite strange because I, I didn't know where the hell I was going. It was all very dark and there was nobody around. And so I just kept taxiing. and I did ask for guidance and they very reluctantly gave me some taxi guidance. And then I stopped and um, the, a car came up and then took me for processing immigration and so on. So that was that. <laughs> quite exciting. Hi, Thanks. Gabby. I'd just like to know what prior experience you'd had of flying,
2: please, before you took on this momentous right. trip.
1: Well, I didn't have a lot of experience, actually. Um, and, in fact, to get sponsorship, you know, because that's what I, I needed to get sponsorship, um, I had to sort of exaggerate a little in a bit. And I had studied quite a bit, though. I didn't have a lot of practical experience. I think I honestly had, at the most, maybe 450 hours um, but I had studied a lot, as I said, and I got my commercial license and I had a class one instrument rating, um, but very little practical experience. Yeah. But I, I had to exaggerate that experience because, you know, I needed sponsorship because I didn't... When I organised the flight, I didn't have any money particularly. Um, and so I had to create the whole thing from nothing and... I had to get very professional um, in my approach to would-be sponsors. And so I ended up you know, getting enough and I borrowed the money on my house. I mortgaged my house in order to buy the airplane. And then I just relied on sponsorship. And Dick Smith was the first one to give me $5,000. And then once he gave me $5,000, other people came and gave me $5,000 and $10,000 and what have you. Thanks so much. It's really
0: interesting. What I'm, the deeper question I want to mm. ask is what actually really drove you to want to do this? What, what were you trying to achieve? And right. the sort of lesser
1: question is what did you do about money when you had to buy fuel in all these weird places? Right. <laughs> well, um, I, I actually, uh, you know, apart from the sponsorship and getting the aircraft sort of equipped, I really didn't have any cash. Um, but what I did is I got credit carnets for the fuel. You know, so I had a carne for Shell, BP, um, whatever, mobile. And so, and I worked out, of course, where I could get all this fuel. And I, of course, I had the flight plans I did. I spent a year organising it. So I had the, the fuel carnets, which was wonderful. And then at the last minute, the, the night before I left, um, my husband's brother came to me um, and he gave me um, the equivalent of um, 5,000 Australian dollars which was, I was very grateful for. I did, in a way, I was rather proud, and I, I didn't really want to accept it, but I thought, well, I don't have any more, I don't have any money. So it would be a very good idea to have that. So that, that uh, was the money situation. And as for the, it, it was a very slow evolution of why I wanted to do it, really. And it comes, it goes a long way back. But I suppose one very, very strong uh, reason was that I thought that if I could create this dream, make this dream a reality, which seemed very difficult, considering I had no aeroplane, no money, no nothing, a single mother with two children, um, if I could actually make this happen, other people could say, well, gee, you know, I can, if she can do that, I can do what I want. And that was a very strong thing in me. I just, you know, I felt very strongly about it. And we all thank you for that. Oh, thank you. thank you. But, um, well,
2: this is not as deep, but what did you eat?
1: Oh, right. <laughs> not a great deal, actually. And in fact, I, I lost a lot of weight. I lost about 28 pounds. I mean, when I came back, I was very thin, um, which, you know, I, I didn't think about too much. But I did notice when I looked at the photos that I was incredibly thin. Um, because what would happen is that I would often leave, uh, get up at, before dawn, leave at the crack of dawn, and fly you know all day, maybe 10 or 12 hours, maybe. And nobody was around. I mean, nobody was there to give me any food. Um, I would stay in, say, in New Guinea. I mean, there was nobody attending. There was nothing, really. And so my aviation friends had, had told me to take Water, plenty of water, of course, because I was. It was very hot flying around the equator, and I, in fact, had a, a sun shield in the in the, on the windscreen uh, to keep the sun out because it was so incredibly hot and drying. Uh, so I just had two liters of water, at least, maybe I even had four liters of water, and I had some lollies. I had some sweet things, which was good for keeping the blood glucose level up. Um, and I might have taken a bit of fruit or something like that. But anything I did take dried out so badly I couldn't eat it. Um, so I, I, I ate well when I landed, um, you know, and had a dinner or something. And then I, if I could have breakfast, I would. But, but it, it, often it wasn't available. So lots of water and uh, not, not a great deal of food. And 28 pounds lighter when I got back. <laughs> so that's the way to go on a diet, but I wouldn't really recommend it, not, not really. I think the 5-2 diet, and I'm sure you've probably heard of that, is a good one, and that works.
2: And Thanks, what Gabby. Work. Good. Um, uh, what, were, what do you think was the worst experience that you had um, right. on the trip, and also uh, what happened to the plane after the trip?
1: Afterwards, right. Well, I think the worst experience was definitely after I had left Hawaii, I went actually to the southernmost, the big island of Hawaii, because it was a tiny bit closer to the mainland of um, the US. And I took off, I, my, I normally would take off late afternoon, maybe about five o'clock, and then fly all night so that I could I could take off in the daylight and land in the daylight. Because when you're really tired and fatigued, you know you need that 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 sort of going for you. So I had a hundred gallons um, in the inside of my aircraft, and just one seat, right? And all these series of tanks, and I had fifty gallons in each wing, which was the normal sort of um, amount of fuel that it had, and and so this complicate I had this complicated uh, switching sequence from one. Uh, tank to the other that was inside the aeroplane and the reason for that was to keep the air, aircraft stable and in balance and the reason I had all these r- ridiculous tanks was because I wanted to be an Australian and I wanted to have um, a VH registration which meant that I, it was an Australian aircraft right and I had a VH GKF Gabby Kennard flight because I could choose that but it wasn't really very safe. Um, because the Americans, when they ferry aircraft, they have one big rubber bladder of a tank, which is so much more sensible because it just feeds directly into the normal um, aircraft um, fuel tanks and it's, and it's not a problem. But with all this switching from one to the other, like I had one tank in the nose, I had two behind me and then I had um, two on the top of that Uh, So I had a whole lot, I had about six tanks. But anyway, the switch, which enabled me to change from one tank to the other, was not behaving normally. And so I I just had a very extended time on the first tank, which was in the nose, and then I went, and I thought, that's strange. This this fuel is lasting longer than it should. Um, And I thought, well, maybe I'm getting some divine assistance or something, and then I thought, oh, no, that's not right. And I was absolutely puzzled, but what had happened... And so then when I, when it, when it, um, I switched again, it, it's, the, the engine stopped. And here I am, and it's at night. It's all dark, and I'm over the ocean. I'm only at about 8,000 feet above the water. And the engine stopped. Well, I couldn't believe it, but I, I knew that there was something wrong. And so what I did is what we are taught to do, you go through this emergency thing, go back to your main tanks, which were the, the wing tanks. So I went back to the tanks. But, by that, but I had lost about two and a half thousand feet and not a long way to go. And I was just terrified, as you can imagine. And I realized that what, why people come to grief is because often they panic. They go into, you know, they can't think. And I, I just remember I, I had this vision of my kids and I thought, oh my God, I've got to work this out. And, you know, because I've got to get back. But the easiest thing in a way would have been just to say, oh, bad luck, you know, I'm dead, oh, okay, and just go into the ocean. I mean, that would have been the easier thing, the hard thing was to think. So, because once I went back to the main tanks, then I had to get back to the auxiliary fuel, all this stuff, and work out. And sometimes when I switched to another tank, I thought it worked and the engine kept going and sometimes it, it cut out. But I got better at switching to the main tanks and then, you know, trying. It was, so it was just trial and error. And that was terrifying. I mean, five times the engine stopped between um, Hawaii and and the West Coast. And the thing is, when it first happened, I was 700 miles east of Hawaii and I knew I couldn't get back, so I had to keep going. And so that that was really, I mean, wearing, to put it mildly. When I got to California, I was just worn out. And in fact, all my, my, my body was sore because the tension in my muscles it was a bit like having a car accident, you know, afterwards, after you, you know, and you feel sore. So um, I, I, it was very difficult for me after that, actually, to take off and continue. I felt like going home, you know, I felt like quitting. But, and it was the most unusual experience, that quitting thing. I was in California, right, I was supposed to take off and then go to Memphis, I think, or wherever my next stop was, and I got in the aeroplane and I filed a flight plan and I was supposed to take off and I was being very professional, you know, yes, blah, blah, and to the uh, tower. And then I just had this, like, I just start shaking and the sweat just came out of, out of me and I, I just couldn't go. And I thought, oh, my God, this happened three times, can you believe it? And then I went back to the, um, on the third time, I went back to the um, little waiting room in on the airport and it was so weird because this guy came on the television, and it was it was the hour of power. I don't know whether you ever remember it. Um, what was his name? Um, in the Glass Cathedral in, in California, he was a um, you know a, a padre, you know, a very positive sort of guy. Anyway, he was saying, "You've got to break through your barrier of fear." And I thought, All "Right, you know, he's talking to me." <laughs> he, and I honestly and truly thought he was. He said, you've got to do it. You've got to, you, if you're going to make it, you've got to break through that barrier in life. You've got to do it. And so I thought, okay, right. So I got out, went back into the aeroplane and started up, did the rigmarole, was all very professional in my communication with the tower, took off. And as soon as I lifted off the ground, I, I thought, oh my God, you know, that's no big deal. Fine. And instead of, Doing a ten-hour flight that day, I thought, take it easy, do a five-hour flight. So that's what I did. But that they were the most frightening. That was the most frightening thing, apart from the storm over the over Africa on in the South Atlantic, which was unbelievable, unbelievable. Like, oh my God, yeah, that was incredible. So the storm was really something too. Shall I tell you about the storm? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, in on the west coast, on the on, on, in the South Atlantic, on the west of Africa, they annually have these storms that are spawned off the west coast, and you know that's Katrina, Cyclone Katrina. Um, at the time that I was flying from South America to to Africa, there was this huge cyclone called Cyclone Hugo, and in fact, I could see the cyclone uh, in the air, and I. Deviated, because it was just like a a, a round cloud with a black hole in the middle of it and I could see it quite clearly. So I I changed my direction a little bit. I was going to land somewhere and I didn't. Um, And then, of course, when I continued on and and got from the last point, Recife, on the east coast of South America for Africa, I suddenly saw these amazing um, flashes of lightning. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, that, that looks like storms ahead. And I thought, well, maybe I can go a little bit to the right of track. and and But no, the storms were there too. They were the left of track and right of track. And I was uh, pretty nervous. Um, so I, I had no um, opportunity to do anything else but go through them, really. And for four hours, these storms would throw me up in the air, you know, about 10,000 feet very quickly and then down 10,000 feet and, the only, and, and everything was just going crazy. Everything that was not tied down was flying around in my aeroplane. And the electrics in the plane were going quite bizarre and crazy. Things were flashing and, you know, and, and, and so I thought, right, I have to turn everything off. Every, all the electrics I turned off. And the only thing that was really going was the engine, which was fantastic. And I thought to myself, <laughs> I thought to myself, well... What can I do? I mean, I can only do my best, and the rest is in the hands of the force. And so I just did my very, very best. And eventually, I mean, after about four hours of all this craziness, um, I got dawn started to come, and I was I, I landed in Dakar on the west coast, and thank God, it was the most frightening thing. It really, really was. But what it did is that this Amiga system which I had borrowed and was pretty unpredictable and hopeless was completely fried. So I had to then turn it off. And then from then on, which was halfway around the world, I was dead reckoning like the pioneers, you know, just, okay, this is my track. Um, I'm I'm going at at about this speed. I should arrive at my destination. and, And also I had to be very, very careful with drift because in aviation navigation, there's this rule that if you are one degree off track in 60 miles, you're 60 miles off track. And, of course, if you're going 1,700 miles across an ocean without any way of um, assessing your, your position, you, you know, you, it's a hopeless situation. So I, I, was very, I became very accurate and careful about never offsetting for drift, more than four degrees either side of track. And of course, when these great storms were happening, there was lightning flashing here, I thought, oh my God, okay, I've got to go to the right of track, and, and I would and I would seriously change my, my track. And then there'd be a great um, lightning strike there, and I'd go, oh my God, okay, I'll go left of track. So I went left and right, left and right. But then I realized as I got to the coast of Africa, Oh, I think I've gone about 50% to the left and 50% to the right. So I think I should be pretty much on track. And sure enough, <laughs> I was. I mean, in all of that 28,000 miles, I landed at my um, s- uh, proposed destination um, within, you know, I was just a couple of miles off. So it was pretty amazing, really. Pretty amazing. So oh, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's another question there.
0: Yeah, hi. Right. Um, I was one of the 2,000 people to greet you at oh, Bankstown. Really? Thank you. Um, I was one of three aerobatic female pilots oh, really? at the time. And sort of wondering, um, you know, your journey afterwards, um, you became a, an icon and an inspiration and... Um, how did that sit with you or, or right. what was your journey afterwards?
1: It was difficult. It really, really was difficult because I was just by myself, you know, for all that time and I, and, and going through places like Africa and, and what have you. I didn't talk to many people. So I was very isolated. I had no idea what was happening at home, what was happening in the world. And, uh, and it was a shock to get back to all of that um, hype. And all I wanted to do really was spend time with my kids, and and I wasn't able to, so it was very difficult. It's very challenging, and and a lot of people, um, somehow or other, thought because I be, I was sort of well known and what have you at that point, that I was also very rich, and and you know I had people being quite mean, you know, and well some people I mean not everybody most people were lovely but. Um, I had a couple of people that wanted to sue me for some bloody reason. Uh, And it was just, it it was very challenging. I think that was even harder, truly. All of that hype and drama and people wanting a piece of me. And I really understood what it was like to be a movie star. You know, a, a movie star that can't cope, takes drugs, you know, dies. Because not many people can handle that sort of thing. It's really hard. It's really hard, and and that was one of the reasons why. Some years after I came back, not too many, I went to live in America. I went to live in Colorado, and I was very happy in a way to do that because um, nobody knew me, and it was it was great. You know, I could be an ordinary person. There's nothing like being an ordinary person. It's really, it's pretty cool. It really is. <laughs> so I think there was another person behind you that wanted to
2: ask something. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, I have two questions for you. Yeah. Um, one is obviously you've uh, faced quite a few challenges during your journey. Was there any point uh, where you were asking yourself, "Oh my gosh, what am I? What was I thinking?"
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, I started to think that when I took off from Bankstown uh, <laughs> because I'd been. Working on this trip for 12 months, you know, I'd been spending about eight hours a day working out where I was going to land, you know, all the um, strategic things. And, and honestly, when I got to the day of taking off, I thought, oh, my God, I'm really going. You know, this is this is a bit of a shock. I was really quite scared. And, and of course, I hadn't tried out my aeroplane much because I'd been delayed and things weren't right, and so I hadn't checked the systems until the first flight, you know, from Sydney to Cairns, which was nine hours. And so I had this little fantasy uh, after I took off. Oh, maybe what I could do is land in Mudgie and hide for six weeks. (laughs) (laughs) And then then just sort of pretend and then fly back. (laughs) (laughs) So that was one fantasy. It really was. I, I really did think that. And then there was another occasion uh, when I left New Guinea and I thought I was heading out to the North East Pacific and it was just nothing but water and, I, and there was this lovely little island called Buka in Bougainville that, I, Bougainville that I flew over and and I sort of remembered the postcards of all these gorgeous little children playing in the water and, and then I looked at that island and I thought, oh... and I saw an airstrip and I thought, oh... I was really frightened to go out into that Pacific, you know, on my own, just out there. And uh, I thought maybe I could just land and uh, forget this, but I didn't. And then when I continued, it was a bit like the situation in California. I just sort of felt really light, you know, and I thought, oh, it's okay. Everything's all right. So I think if you, you know, it's a matter of facing the fear and thinking of the worst thing that could happen and then thinking, oh no. It's going to be okay then. I think that's what happened. That's how it happened.
2: It was great. Wow. And the second question is, when are you planning to do this again? I want to come <laughs> with. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's very funny. Um, well, I was actually uh, thinking of doing it again some years after I got back, and I was going to do it in a helicopter. And I actually went to um, Bell Corporation in, uh, in America and, and asked them if I could borrow an airplane aircraft. But they, they wouldn't... they wouldn't And I thought, oh, look, that's silly. Why do it again? You know, it, it's ridiculous. So, no, I wouldn't do it again. I did get a helicopter licence, though, and I did fly a helicopter, but not around the world. This would be about the last, I think, eh? Hey? Would it?
2: OK, then it's my it's my turn now, Gabby. Yes, uh, go you ahead. Ser- you certainly proved yourself to be a courageous and determined lady, and I congratulate you Thank on that. Thank you. The plane there, uh, Gulf Kilo Foxtrot, is 35 years old uh, today and I right. own it, still, uh, still based at Bankstown.
1: Oh, really? And Do you know I, it?
2: And i got a cattle bro- property up at Gunnedah, and oh, used you it own and we to fly it. backwards and forwards. My son Matt here, he, he does the flying. I'm, I'm getting a bit older and wobbly now. Isn't that but, great? But the plane is a beautiful plane to fly. We Fantastic. love it. Fantastic. And it's still going well.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. And, and
2: one day it should finish up in a museum.
1: Yes, so, I agree. So
2: if you want to buy it back, just let me know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, well, I'm so glad to hear that. That's very, very special. Thank you for looking after it. It's Has it still got the plaque in it that says what happened? Oh, wow. That's special. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for coming. It's telling me that. Just, oh, one more. Yeah, Thank you for following your dreams and inspiring us. What is your next dream? Well, um, my next dream is to win the Archibald Prize. I'm an artist now and I've been studying art and, and painting for the last, well, I've, I guess I've been doing it a little bit all my life, but um, more so in recent years. I went to study at uh, the National Art School and... I guess that is something that I would really like to do. So I'm working on it. Okay, one last. Were you feeling
2: lonely on the plane?
1: Yes, I was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Can I I just add, Elizabeth wanted
0: to know did you sing or talk to yourself while you were traveling?
1: Yes, I did. I sang and I talked to myself. Yes. And I imagined that I had a committee um, of, of pioneers, pioneer aviators, that were helping me. And so I would talk to them. And somehow or other, I really believed it. Um, I think that um, you, know, you hear about people on ships out at sea and what have you, and they, they have these um, visions of people and what have you. Well, I think that's the sort of thing that happened to me, and I sort of believed it, and it was very comforting.
0: (laughs) You truly are an incredible inspiration and so self effacing as you talk about your remarkable trip there. I wanted to know one thing else. Did you ever get airsick? Even being thrown around in that storm. Oh, that was good that you didn't get airsick. But I think it's remarkable, the power of the mind and the determination. And as you said, lots of solo sailors talk about the presence of someone else with them. We've heard from Tim Jarvis in the series of talks as he went across Antarctica, really feeling that there was somebody else with him at different times. And I think it's part of... uh, human endurance and resilience and determination to survive that our mind enables us, to supports us by making us feel we're not entirely alone, that there is somebody else there with us. And it's a, a very extraordinary thing we don't understand yet maybe. And I, through these Trailblazer talks and through being involved in the exhibition, I hope we've really brought out some of the stories of people and what makes an adventurer or an explorer, and what makes people determined? I think there is. We say it in the uh, in the program, uh, the catalogue for the exhibition that there's probably it's not been discovered yet in our DNA, an adventure gene that might exist, because certainly humans are all about going on an adventuring in their next quest, and and uh, I've certainly noticed among most of our modern day adventurers. They're often not satisfied with just one thing. Or they do go on to other pursuits and have success in a, another field through that sheer spirit of determination. So I think it's great to, uh, when you can find that, that little thing inside of us all that keeps us going in that way. But thank you very much. We've got two more of these. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.